0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a recent strike that has happened amongst call center workers in Mississippi and Louisiana. Also going to be touching on the impact of the new Cold War in Latin America and much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: Well, I know that we all need a little respite from all the horror and chaos and fear and struggle in the world today. And I begrudge no one their enjoyment of a good movie or their favorite reality show. I mean, I watch action movies and zombie flicks, so I sure can't judge anyone's taste in mindless entertainment. But celebrity culture has us believing that celebrities are really that important in the grand scheme of things. And worse, I think it has some of them believing they're that important. You know I'm talking about the Oscars, which I did not watch, but I woke up to read that Will Smith slapped Chris Rock on stage because of a weird joke Rock told about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, during the program. Now, I'm not going to get into whether the moment was staged or not. I don't care. What gets under my skin is what Smith said afterward. He said, quote, in this time in my life, in this moment, I am overwhelmed by what God is calling on me to do and be in this world. I know to do what we do, you got to be able to take abuse. You got to smile and you got to pretend like that's okay." End quote. I'm sorry, my dude. What exactly do you do that you have to take any abuse? People talking crazy about you, which is which is what he said. That's abuse. Oh, try being a journalist and exposing the lies of the imperialist state these days and have your content booted off of social media platforms. Try being called a Russian agent and having your livelihood threatened and being threatened not by a comedian, mind you, but by the government of this country. That is abuse, my dude. And then, allegedly, Denzel Washington said to Smith after the slap, And before his acceptance speech for whatever he won that Oscar for, quote, at your highest moment, be careful. That's when the devil comes for you, end quote. I mean, I'm not going to take up for the devil right now because he has been known to be a bit of a troublemaker. But the devil ain't got nothing on the imperialist state in this country that shuts down dissent. Yes, that was a little bit of nod to Washington's Academy Award winning role in Training Day, one of my favorite movies. Then you got Sean Penn demanding that the Academy allow Volodymyr Zelensky to speak or else he would smelt his Oscar down in public. Go on ahead and smelt that Oscar for the guy in Ukraine who is asking the U.S. for a no-fly zone to get World War III and possible nuclear Armageddon kicked off. The guy who integrated a whole neo-Nazi battalion into the Ukrainian army allows the fascist Svoboda Party to maintain legitimacy in the Kiev government. The guy who has overseen the unreported eight-year civil war against the working-class ethnic Russians in the Donbas and Luhansk regions, during which over 14,000 casualties occurred, most of them ethnic Russians, and the guy who now refuses to open humanitarian corridors because of alleged possible Russian provocations, which is garbage. Zelensky is willing to let Ukrainians starve to make Russia look like the bad guy for the U.S. But yeah, Sean Penn smelt that Oscar down to own Putin. I cannot tell you who won what and for what last night, but I can tell you that in the past few days, it turns out that the emails about Hunter Biden's foreign work for the Ukrainian oil company Burisma, not at all coincidentally, are actually not right-wing hogwash spun to tank Joe Biden's presidency The emails that the social media giants Twitter and Facebook uh, blocked or restricted posts about back before the 2020 election turn out to be actual emails from Hunter Biden's actual laptop and not the Russian misinformation Trump Russian plot to destroy Joe Biden that the corporate media and its social media appendages claimed it was. But those stories were censored then, and folks just went on about their life like media censorship was okay. So now that journalists are being censored on a massive scale, it's completely acceptable. But please, let's talk about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and whether that was real or staged. Anthony Hopkins, one of my favorite actors, even weighed in on the foolishness by saying, quote, Will Smith said it all. What's more that can be said? Let's have peace and love and quiet, end quote. Oh, that's nice. These rich celebrities want peace and love and quiet. But the president of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden, basically called for regime change in Russia when he said a few days ago, Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power after calling him a butcher. Biden just said the quiet part of U.S. foreign policy out loud. Washington's foreign policy is regime change, folks. That's what they did in Ukraine. And you see how that's working out. And that means misery and war and death for millions if they do it in Russia. And I should say, if they do it again in Russia, because never forget how Bill Clinton helped re-elect Boris Yeltsin in 1996 to keep Russia capitalist, even though the economy for Russian people was a disaster, so they were about to elect communist Gennady Zyuganov. And Biden has a real nerve calling Putin a butcher. I mean, it's not like I'm defending Putin either, but Biden just promised us food shortages and high fuel prices and inflation, but still no health care No student loan debt cancellation, no child tax credit extension, and no higher minimum wage. Hell, even the free lunch program for public school kids that was expanded under COVID relief is about to end. All while the U.S. is bombing Yemen and Syria and Somalia and overseeing continual destabilization operations throughout Africa via AFRICOM and ramping up tensions with China through the Indo-PACCOM. But yeah, Putin's the butcher. Putin ain't got nothing on the butchery of the U.S., and you will never hear about any of that butchery that the U.S. regularly commits all over the world and domestically from the celebrity distraction class in this country. And that, y'all, is the real slap. Follow Luke Mann Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lupeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice L.A. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sean and Jackie. It's my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And uh, Don here recently, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, was giving a-, a talk. I believe he was in Poland and he straight up just called for regime change in Russia. Uh, speaking of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin saying, quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Now, interestingly, the White House kind of tried to uh, backtrack on that uh, releasing a statement saying, quote, the president's point was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia or regime change. And another uh, White House official pointed out about how, you know, him saying that uh, uh, wasn't in his prepared remarks. And so it makes me think of two things, really, down I mean, number one, I feel like any time Biden goes off script, he seems to get in trouble and not just uh, during his presidency. I think we've seen this over the years as well. And then, I mean, second and the most obvious aspect is, I mean, here we have um, a, a world leader, a sitting world leader uh, calling for the removal of another uh, sitting world leader. And it's not the first time in uh, this most recent period where where we've, you know, uh, heard officials in the U.S. outright call for the removal of Vladimir Putin. And so I'm just wondering what you're uh, making of this, Don, and the way that the White House is responding, as it seems that, you know, Biden sort of accidentally uh, revealed what I think a lot of us sort of thought was likely the case in terms of Washington's interest in regime change in Moscow.
3: Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious that that's what their target is, and their target is to capture Russia and to break it into enough pieces that they can uh, parcel out their mineral wealth and the, the you know, educated labor force uh, that are there and put them to the service of the people that the people in Congress and the White House and everywhere else in Washington work for. That's their mission. The largest budget for the largest project in the history of the world is the U.S. military, whose project has been that pretty much since 1917. So, you know that's that's no secret. With Biden, I mean, you know, I, I was down in D.C. a week or two, week and a half ago, and you know, we walk up to up near Lafayette Park, you know, near the White House, and I'm seeing there's somebody that's jogging around the park backwards. I so what the hell was that? And I realized that's the guy whose job it is to b- walk back all of Biden's mis mis and mistaken words and everything. They gotta keep him in shape because they have to walk back something every couple of days. He is clearly non-compass mentis. He when he walked there was uh, he when he was in Poland um Saturday or Sunday, I don't remember, he went first to to, to where they landed in a city, I forget the name of it, that's near the border with Ukraine. And he had a press conference there and, I don't know, waved a magic wand or something, said a couple of things. And then he climbed up the stairs to get on the plane to fly to Warsaw, where they were having the actual meetings. And um, which is where Zelensky has been, by the way, since February 26th. Nobody talks about that, but that's true. Um, And so – he, he's walking up the steps, and I, I, I watched the video. I'm saying to myself, I've seen this before. This is going to be interesting. And you can see him securely with his left hand holding on to the guardrail as he walks up the steps. And he, when he was about a step and a half, two steps away from the top platform, the video had a jump cut in it. And it, it, went, it, it was at the... Uh, Geez, I don't remember exactly the the, the frame. The frame that was like the twenty eighth frame of like the figure what seconds into this video. But he's standing on the next to the last step, re- you know, reaching with his other leg towards the next step, and suddenly he's facing the other way on the platform, looking down. Now I don't know what happened there, but I'm wondering if he fell again, and it didn't, they didn't want it to be on camera because the source of the video was Voice of America. Now, okay, so that's all fun and, and games. Objectively speaking, in terms of military strategist planning, I'm, I'm a Russian military strategist, or I'm a senior government official on a military committee in the Duma or in the president's office or whatever. And I'm looking at... The U.S. military and and all of its puppetry, you know, piling weapons further and further along into Europe until they're at my border. Now, I'm surrounded by these things. I see an, an attempted coup in Belarus, an attempted coup in Kazakhstan, attempts to stir up Georgia, all of these things that are obviously part of an effort to make war. Okay, and I'm looking at all of this stuff and what happened in Ukraine, where there's actual shooting. They're shooting at Russians. They are the ones that live inside Ukraine, killing them, thousands, tens of, almost more than 10,000 of them, and wondering what's going to happen. And then he says this, and I look at the history of the United States, what happened to the last couple people that said that about Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi? I'm sitting with my finger on a nuclear button saying to myself these people aren't kidding they're coming in and when they start moving in the backfield i'm not going to give them the benefit of the doubt it is a terribly dangerous situation and you have some i've said this once one other time when we spoke you know we we had this situation in october 1962 where we were very close to uh nuclear war with the soviet union um no None of those people said any crazy stuff like Biden is saying and like Blinken is saying regularly and a whole bunch of people in Congress. They all kept their mouths shut and they took their cue from Kennedy and, and the press also took their cue from Kennedy. And it was a diverse press at that time. And they all understand anybody there over the age of 10 understood that he, this is not a moment to act a fool. And yet we have all of this stuff going on now. They said at the time, if you asked uh, McNamara, who was a secretary of defense at the time, uh, the brilliant guy, crazy, but brilliant. If you asked Fidel Castro, these are on the record, or the memoirs of, of Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Soviet leader at the time. How did we avoid nuclear war in October of 1962? Each of them said specifically sheer luck. Now, at that time, you had Jack Kennedy as president, you had Robert McNamara, the secretary of defense, you had grownups. We now have someone who is clearly cognitively, you know, impaired to, to be gentle, who is at least nominally the one with his finger on the button. And we have people in Congress openly calling on a daily basis for a no-fly zone to get tougher with Putin. The Republicans are saying that Biden is too soft. We're two inches from nuclear war. He's too soft on on Russia, and and the Democrats are saying, well, we're going to have to go through this because this is what Trump left us. And meanwhile, we're an inch from nuclear war, and we have you know Grandpa uh, at,
1: at the front. Not good. I mean. Th- I, I can't disagree with anything you said about uh, Biden and his clear uh, uh, issues uh, with cognition, especially since, you know, once again, this, this, you know, what Biden said about, uh, you know, Putin uh, shouldn't uh, be allowed, being allowed to remain in power was not a part of his remark. So, I mean, this means that his speech writers and all of his handlers took great pains, Don, to Make sure that Biden stayed on script, and doggone it, he didn't. And now he's having to uh, clean up the fact that he said the quiet part about Washington's foreign policy out, lo- uh, out loud. Washington's mm-hmm. foreign policy is regime change. And and yep. I mean, th- there is, I think, a part of this narrative, while, while funny, you know, with Biden's Uh, uh, you know, issues that that we can debate back and forth. The fact is that everyone in Washington seems to know that what Zelensky is asking for in regard to a no-fly zone and, and, you know, that kind of thing, it would be disastrous. It would usher in World War III and possibly uh, a nuclear confrontation. But you have Biden who is throwing around these, honestly, threats to depose uh, Vladimir Putin, making a bad situation that the U.S., EU, and NATO created in the first place so much worse, and now you have Zelensky claiming that, you know, Russia is going to attack humanitarian corridors, so we're not opening those humanitarian uh, humanitarian corridors. As much as the corporate media in the U.S. is is trying to claim that the war is not going Putin's way— It's looking to me that this war is actually not going the U.S. and EU and NATO's way because, I mean, it's Biden,
3: (laughs) Look, there's a few things. First of all, there have been many statements that were official statements made, a, a little more considered, but clearly, obviously, uh, betraying their intent for regime change. Uh, all of the press conferences that they've had since this began and even before that, they more or less openly call on the uh, people in Russia to either to the military leaders should, you know, do a, a military coup, uh, that, the, that the Duma uh, should, you know, restrain and, and or remove the president, Uh, And and the people should go out in the street. You know, 10 people gather in in Red Square and suddenly there's 100 on television, on CNN. And people in Russia see on CNN, oh, it's time to go down to Red Square. And so, you know, you have a couple of thousand people. Nobody mentions in the media here, of course, if you have 10 or 100,000 people protesting in Moscow, it's a city of 14 million people. But they're trying to induce unrest in Russia. And the purpose of sanctions, as we know, is to try to create pain among the population to create dissatisfaction this, this with the government. That's what they do. That's that part of their playbook. So, you know, Biden, you know, talking out of turn, What? what how is it uh, Tom Nichols put it, uh, an unforced error. You know, CNN reported uh, they had, a you know, the, the chyron, uh, the graphic uh, on the thing said Biden, colon, Putin cannot remain in power. And Tom Nichols, who's a writer for The Atlantic and teaches at the Navy War College, and he's a deep insider, um, gets all apoplectic about this because basically that they reported accurately what he said, saying that the fact of reporting it was irresponsible. And, and the thing is, they're really irresponsible is, of course, they don't report it with any context because while they're stirring in the background imagery and, and and emotional response that this horrible holocaust has descended upon the Ukrainian de- peace-loving democratic Ukrainian people because of the evil Putin and his you know, diabolical uh, killing soldiers, they leave a, a number of things out, like, On Saturday, the most recent release from the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights at the United Nations, basically the one who's actually keeping score in terms of body count internationally, from February 24th to March 26th, which was this past uh, Saturday, the total civilian deaths, bad as it is, was 1,104. Now, for, for reference, in the time between March 20th and April 9th, Okay, you're talking uh, 20 days, less than three weeks in shock and awe, 2003, six thousand seven hundred and thirty five civilians were killed. Okay, and then up until they stopped counting them in 2011, the United States killed one hundred and twenty thousand one hundred and seven civilians in Iraq that they've counted. And since then, they count another 66,000 to 89,000, depending on whose numbers you use. Okay. This is also, Iraq has half the population, roughly, of Ukraine. So the United States, now, (laughs) there's Iraq, there's Libya, there's Syria, there's uh, Yemen, there's, what, do you want to go, Congo? Where in Africa do you want to go? All over the world, the United States eats people on a daily basis. 1,000, 1,100 civilians is bad. It's, it's not nearly as many as the government in Kiev killed of their own people. It's one-twelfth, as a matter of fact. But none of that context is given to people, and so you walk around, and every person with a decent heart that is, you know, ignorant of what's going on because of the media here and our political class is wearing a yellow and blue pin, or you know, and mouthing some platitude that is disconnected from reality, and actually puts them in the camp of actual fascists who are using those colors with their own private little swastika. And and if you tell these people that, they're aghast, and they don't believe it cuz that's what we're being fed.
0: Yeah, totally. I mean it 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 actually sort of Brings into focus and makes it make sense in terms of why the the suppression and censorship of alternative views is so important because I mean the lie that's uh, uh, being put forth and distortions also of this whole situation is a big part of the U.S. government's and corporate media's whole uh scheme for manufacturing consent. Well, we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're gonna leave it there. We're we'll moved to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Spike in Washington, DC. We'll be right back. So please. Stay with us.
2: By any means necessary.
0: Welcome back And today we're talking about the impacts of the new Cold War on Latin America. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ali Vargas, writer and journalist with Radio Casachun Coca. Ali, thanks so much for joining us.
4: No, thanks for having me back on. Talk about this in Pornish.
0: Absolutely, and ali different governments and people's movements around the globe have been sort of grappling with uh both the potential and already unfolding impacts of the war in Ukraine. And I think uh, some of the more uh, uh, critically minded uh, figures in some of these governments and movements understand uh, the war in Ukraine as part and parcel of the U.S. and NATO-driven new Cold War, with Washington setting its sights on Moscow and Beijing as it sees those two governments as its chief uh, competition. And I know recently Recently, uh, in Bolivia, uh, Juan Ramon Quintana, who's a former uh, minister of the presidency, actually gave uh, a talk on NATO and sort of analyzed uh, the situation not only from the standpoint of Bolivia but also how things are likely to unfold in Latin America as a region as this uh, conflict continues to intensi- intensify. And he said a number of things that I think are uh, uh, prescient, but even uh, more so on the topic. Itself, I mean, Ali. How do you see sort of uh, the geopolitical situation impacting Bolivia, impacting Latin America, and, and why should folks uh, be keeping an eye on this?
4: Yeah, that's right. He uh, he came to where to, to where I work, which is in the tropical crater, and I was actually organising a slideshow during the speech, and he spoke about. Um, Well, Evo Morales had asked him to come and speak to union members about the war, a workshop about the war in Ukraine. And uh, he went into detail about the fact that this is part of uh, a geopolitical alignment. This this isn't about personalities, not about Putin or Biden or um, all of the things that the media, or Zelensky, all the things the media like to focus on. But this is about a wider realignment that's going on. And we're likely to see that become more and more uh, tense, we're likely to see more and more conflict play out. And I think if we take a look at the wider picture, I think it's quite interesting that although, of course, the United States has lots of allies in in Latin America, uh, lots of uh, right-wing conservative governments that have been willing to uh, uh, obey America's orders on a number of issues, actually on this issue, they have not followed through with uh, sanctions on Russia, despite enormous pressure by the United States to do so. I mean, perhaps one of the most important examples, which hasn't received much coverage, is the decision by the government of Panama. because Panama has the Panama Canal, which is one of the most important trade routes anywhere in the world. And they took the decision to not uh, observe the international sanctions placed against, or the U.S. sanctions placed against Russia, um, and Russia can continue to move freely through those, that canal and trade with uh, the uh, the hemisphere. And uh, Panama is no kind of progressive or uh, you know left wing government. It actually has a conservative government, very pro United States. But even they now are not marching to the orders of of the US. So I think we've got to look at how uh, there is a broader realignment. You know, countries like India, Saudi Arabia. Countries that have always been on the side of the United States are now getting very tired of things. And even here in Latin America, Colombia, which is a NATO global partner, of course, they uh, released lots of statements condemning Russia and condemning Vladimir Putin. But in terms of sanctions, even symbolic sanctions, they haven't come. And I think there's a real sense in Latin America that uh, it is it's, it's very unreasonable of the United States to try and drag the continent into the, into a conflict that has very little to do with Latin America um, and is a, is a conflict between different European countries. Uh, but the effects are going to be felt here. You know, the issue of wheat is going to mean that the price of bread in many countries is going to rise, and Latin America is just coming out of the sort of, uh, economic recession of the pandemic. The growth is very, very fragile. That's going to Create an incredibly difficult situation if the price of uh, fuel rises. I mean, that's something that could cause, you know, um, an incredibly chaotic situation in many countries. So it's uh, who's paying the price for Russia sanctions? Well, of course, Europe is. European citizens are, of course, United States citizens are, but also in Latin America, who has nothing to do with this conflict.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the uh, foreign minister, uh, Juan Ramon Quintana, was very clear on how the U.S. and NATO would uh, uh, target Latin American countries as they try to bully them into taking a side against Russia and China. And, I mean, what are some of the things that he said that people in Latin American countries should be prepared for uh, in the coming days, months, maybe even years, as the U.S. empire uh, struggles to maintain uh, global control?
4: Yeah, I think um, there, there, there already has been uh, an enormous amount of pressure, particularly on countries that are sort of key countries in the international economy, such as Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, and all of them have refused to uh, impose these sorts of sanctions. But I think we are going to see a campaign for uh, make, trying to bring the discourse around Putin, around Russia and Ukraine into Latin American countries and use it as a, you know, as, as a hammer, particularly from the media. We're likely to see, I think, more funding for groups, uh, not opposition groups or right wing groups within countries or use the banner of uh, Putinism and Russia to uh, try and uh, agitate. But I think we have to see how uh, how this plays out. I think it's very concerning that the European Union, along with the U.S., have both been uh, pressuring the American government so publicly And here in Bolivia, the European Union, uh, the EU ambassador here, was giving interviews in, uh, in mainstream media, doing press conferences, pressuring the Bolivian government. That's something they've never done on, on other issues, but now all of a sudden they're uh, um, you know, saying that they, they need to explain the, the conflict to the Bolivia's foreign minister, um, you know, denouncing Bolivia's position. This is something they've never done on any other issue. And now there's this public uh, sort of pressure that's, that's quite unprecedented. And I think we we'll likely to see perhaps a greater break in terms of trade, in terms of aid, from the West, into Latin America. I, we'll see how it goes, whether the United States goes for the stick approach or the carrot approach, because the reality is they can't simply push Latin America around anymore, because the United States is not the only game in town. Land, most Latin American countries, including the United States and allies, their largest trading partners are now China. China is ready to come in with even more investments than what they already have bringing countries to the Belt and Road Initiative, and more. So the United States can't simply push people around anymore with quite the ease. So I think they'll either have two options to try and uh, either sweeten the deal or to take an even tougher approach and just through brute force try and uh, uh, change the stance of Latin America. And I think a lot of what I'm saying applies to to, countries like Africa as well.
0: Yeah. And Ali, what you're saying reminds me of a couple of things that uh, Mr. Quintana said in his speech there in Bolivia, about how um, the Latin American countries, basically that won't go along with the Washington consensus or try to remain neutral, will be tarred as pro Russian and therefore will be subject to all manner of attack. And so I think you're right to, to be concerned about how publicly the U.S. is uh, uh, sort of cajoling these different countries. And th- there's some deeper aspects to this as well when we talk about the possibility of a whole other. a a world order emerging from this crisis that appears to be uh, already set in motion. I want to read just a little bit of a translation of uh, Mr. Quintana's piece that really, uh, uh, I think, drives us home. He said, quote, the West, European Union, United States, NATO, what they are trying to do is survive through their political, economic, financial and cultural crisis Because the West has not given any answer to humanity. The West today is synonymous with war, destruction, weapons, atomic arsenals. What is the culture of the West? We're coming from, as comrade Hector Arce said, for 500 years, they have been mutilating our ears, cutting off our noses, cutting off our hands, dismembering us, leaving horses to dismember us. That's what the West left with us, comrades. And that culture of destroying nature, Mother Earth, does not cease. It does not cease in its compulsive, materialistic appetite to wage war, to appropriate other people's strategic resources. Therefore, there is a culture war. We are in the middle of a cultural war, brothers and sisters, and that implies the reaffirmation of our identity. That implies preserving the plurinational state, This political project that implies continuing to fight, dear colleagues, for our coca to continue fighting for our lithium, to continue fighting for our gas, to continue fighting for the nationalization that has cost this country so many deaths. And to continue fighting for this political project, because this political project is the antithesis of Western culture, which is a culture of death. It is a culture of war. It is a culture of confrontation. It is a culture of business over the corpses of humanity. I mean, I feel like that just says so much, uh, Ali. And, you know, I don't know if Mr. Quintana uh, uh, is a listener by any means necessary, but we say all the time here on the show that, you know, this capitalist system is a death cult. And what he's bringing together here is not only the sort of uh, relevance of the current political moment which is very necessary but you know tying that in with the history of Bolivia and the political project of its plurinational state And I feel like all of that is important to consider, not only for Bolivia as an individual country, but I feel like this is part of the calculus that a lot of countries within the Latin American and the Caribbean region are sort of having to grapple with right now. And I got to say, this is the context that I think is, frankly, completely absent in uh, the mainstream uh, Western press that is just, you know, coasting off of uh, uh, sort of anti-Putin hysteria, kind of like, you know, Ukraine good, Russia bad. I mean, I think regardless of what one feels about uh, the invasion, that just uh, seems uh, pretty incomplete. But I mean, I could go on and on, Ali, but it it just seems pretty obvious that the United States um, is trying to, you know, maintain its unipolar control and seemingly will uh, uh, stop at nothing to try to keep a multipolar world from emerging.
4: Exactly. And I think you just have to look at the sorts of just everyday discussions in, in media, among people, compare what you have in the United States with what's going on in Latin America. And in Latin America and, well, not just Latin America, but all emerging markets are talking about the future, talking about how, how can we, you know, move towards uh, green energy? How can we, uh, move, you know, industrialise our economies? How can we meet the new technologies of the future? Whereas the United States is falling deeper and deeper into this sort of paranoid um, circle of destruction, where they they see threats everywhere, um, they're aware that their hegemony, although still intact, is in a phase of of, of terminal decline, um, and rather than manage that decline in an ordered way, they're just thrashing out like a like a wounded beast, you know? And this is. A, this is at the root of a lot of uh, the problems the United States facing and the increasingly sort of debased political deb- political discussions around it. And the fact now that there's just no kind of uh, free speech, free discussion in regards to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. I mean, here, you know, you can see, you can hear all kinds of opinions uh, across all of the spectrums talking about what's happening. That's something that's not really allowed in, in the United States, or, or, in the UK or anywhere in Europe, there is a, a level of like unprecedented unity around this, you know, as you call it around this sort of death drive. Um, whereas the rest of the world is looking at this in a more nuanced way. In Latin America, in Africa, you know, across the Middle East, India, um, of course, China are looking at this in a much more nuanced and balanced way and not to say, oh, everyone's in one camp or another, but people are looking at it in a more uh, in a serious way, um, you know, analyzing what's going to happen, analyzing what's going to be the economic effect, how they can respond to it, rather than just this sort of giddy uh, drive for war.
1: Yeah, and you brought up uh, China, certainly, you know, the West and its uh equally as antagonistic relationship with China or against China as it has against Russia uh, was a topic of uh, these comments. And I'm wondering how the U.S. relationship with China and uh, the relationship that the global South has with China factors into uh, the, the goals and the plans for what uh, global South countries, what they have to continue to face, uh, as you said, really, really well describing the U.S. thrashing around like, you know, an, a wounded beast that's, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, hold on to uh, to its vitality. So, you know, where does China factor into um, the, the path forward for uh, Latin America?
4: It's just such a such a different approach to everything the United States stands for. I mean, uh, for, for starters, China, you know, the Chinese—you know—the U.S. has poured millions and millions into propaganda operations in the region and funding opposition groups and building narratives, etc. China is is almost uninterested in, in these sorts of things. Um, but without noise, without making a big show, they've now become the largest trading partner of pretty much pretty much every. Latin American country. Um, I mean, we we now have a situation in which the right-wing, pro-U.S. government of Uruguay is leading the campaign for a Mercosur, which is sort of the South American economic bloc, to do a deal, uh, sort of an enormous historic deal with China. They're the ones who are leading the charge in this. So, China has managed to build relationships with each Latin American country based on, well, based on respect. And that's, I mean, has been able to cross all kinds of uh, ideological barriers. Um, and what that's meant is that it's been much more successful than what the US has been doing, which is sort of brute force, uh, threats, uh, you know, harassment. And I think in this situation now, where every Latin American country is going to be feeling the pinch on issues like bread prices and more what 's happening the u s is the one that's pressuring them to do things that, that you know American countries have absolutely no interest in doing, whereas China is the one that's not asking them of anything is drawing up trade deals it's drawing up uh, you know investments China doesn't demand these kind of internal political changes that the u s is trying to do so. It's not a question of uh, a big a clash between these two powers. What we're seeing is a sort of natural transition where all global south countries, even though even those who are not on the left, are naturally gravitating towards China, not because they like China or, you know, admire China, but because it's simply a better deal. And through that sort of slow process I think we're gonna have a relatively, you know we're going to see a new world order start to emerge. Um, I'd be really interested to see if Latin America can insert itself on the issues of things like payment systems. You know, we can, because we've seen now that Visa, MasterCard can be turned off like a tap for political reasons. Latin America should be having discussion about, you know, doing as Russia has done, moving towards Chinese infrastructure on issues like payments. You know, that's what Saudi Arabia, India is starting to look at. Because many countries are now looking at how globalisation can be simply turned off for a political reason and people are worried, Well who's gonna be next? If you anger the United States, who's gonna be next? Whereas China uh, is is uninterested in these sorts of uh threats and cajoling.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ali, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Basil Jupiter, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation in Mississippi. Basil, thanks so much for joining us. No problem
5: at all. No problem at all.
0: Absolutely. And Basil, I know that uh, recently some call center workers in Mississippi actually uh, launched a labor strike against some of the uh, labor practices of the company that they work for. And this is in Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi, to be exact. And uh, I was wondering if you could sort of break down uh, just what's happening here and what is the relevance of the uh, uh, call center workers struggle here?
5: Yeah, so this was a strike, um, by, uh, Maximus workers. And Maximus is one of the largest, um, federally contracted, uh, call centers in the country. Um, so what these, um, workers were striking over were, you know, like, uh, they, you know, they want livable wages, a living wage, paid sick leave, and the freedom to organize you without interference. And that last one is, you know, also really important because, um, you know actually they're not yet a uh, registered union like they're not they're not uh, re- recognized by the um, workplace Maximus. Um, yet even though they're not organized union, they've still been able to get a lot of concessions from the company. Um, you know like when the union started in 2017, you know Maximus toll workers would it would take an act of Congress to raise their pay from you know nine dollars and five cents. But, you know, because the union's organizing, they're able to raise it again and again, you know, like to like $11. And, you know, now under, you know, like a, a uh, mandate granted by, you know, the current president, uh, federal contractors are expected, you know, minimum pay of $15 an hour. But what Maximus workers are saying, even, like $15 an hour is still not enough, especially with, you know, with the rising cost of living, you know, trend we've seen over the past few years. Um and also recently, you know, these rising gas prices um, due to, you know, uh, sanctions against Russia. So it's a lot of, so, you know, yeah, so it's, you know, it's these factors that have made Maximus workers going to strike. And um, because they're not a recognized union, they went on an unfair labor practices strike. So what that means is that um, they're not exactly um, blocking people from going to work, but they are um, still, you know, standing outside of the work. They were standing outside of the workplace. There was a lot of people, um, more than thirty workers strong, including um, other uh, CWA workers from other workplaces like AT and T workers who also went to strike in two thousand nineteen. Um, so, so even though you know they weren't blocking people from coming into a workplace, they're still able to get a lot of people out. And even one woman I interviewed, uh, it was her first time. Uh, doing anything uh, with uh, the Communication Workers of America, the Call Center Workers Union, and so that and that was so for a lot of people. It was, you know, yeah, for it was like a, you know, yeah, the first engagement with a strike for me. Actually, you know, living in Mississippi for so long, um, a strike is yes, like you know, we don't have like strikes as often as some other places. Obviously, we do have a you know long history of labor and the labor movement. But for me, it was, yeah, my first time seeing a strike as well. So, yeah, this was, yeah, this was a really um, significant thing. And another thing I'll add is that it wasn't just in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, that workers were on strike. Um, you know, call center workers uh, at Maximus also went on strike in uh, Bogalusa, Louisiana. Um, so, that's, so it was uh, coordinated on the same day between these two workplaces, both in right-to-work Southern states, you know, where they tell us, "Oh, you know, you can't do anything with with labor," but they show us, "Yes, you can, and you can do it really well. You can get a lot of people out." Um, so yeah,
1: yeah, Basil. I mean, a part of this uh, worker strike is really interesting because of what these call center workers do for Maximus. They are the contractor. Maximus is the contractor uh, for the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And a part of what these call center workers do is help people navigate their benefits under the Affordable Care Act. What is an aspect of what the workers are experiencing as employees of Maximus that makes the job they do like such a, a horrible contradiction in what they're not able to uh, literally afford in, in the work they do every day.
5: I mean, yeah, you're exactly right, Jackie. They're not able to afford the very healthcare, you know, that they are providing, um, you know, like, you know, her, and not just for, for themselves, but also for our families. So and we also need to you know note that, you know, um, I think almost half of these workers are, have fam you know, have families of their own. Um, you know, I've heard stories of workers, you know, talking about, you know, like with their, you know, like, uh, um, you know, $4,500 deductible. Um, you know, they've, you know, had to have, you know, uh, their pay deducted because, because of, you know, having, for example, expensive surgery. One woman told me about, you know, like, uh, cataracts, you know, like, uh, because she got cataracts, you know, she had to have her pay deducted. And, you know, another one talk is about, like, having to do, you know, like, you know, unregistered time because 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 of, you know, like the fact that she doesn't get paid sick time off. So that's why workers are demanding paid sick leave. And, you know, also with just, like, the, you know, like, current pay, you know, a lot of workers, you know, can't, you know, like, afford, you know, things like, you know, like, uh, you know, gas, light, or having to choose between food and lights, and food and the light bill. So, you know, just like, you know, just like, you know, healthcare um, specifically, but also, you know, all the things that, you know, food, lights, you know, school, things like that, you know, the things that amount to a healthy life, uh, Maximus workers are not afforded in <laughs> a workplace where they are providing, you know, for the affordable health, you know, affordable health care. So that's, you know, a huge contradiction um, that, of course, you know, the Maximus CEO, which makes, you know, seven million dollars annually seems to be OK with as long as he can make massive profits um, off of paying his workers um, very low wages compared to other call center workers.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you uh, raised that last point about uh, Bruce Caswell, the CEO of Maximus, uh, bringing home seven million dollars last year. Uh, meanwhile, of uh, the workers who create that wealth. Um, uh, uh, aren't even being paid uh, a living wage, a wage that is enough for them to be able to care for their families, like you're saying, as many of the workers are parents and all these sorts of things. It's almost like a, a classic example of the kind of a worker exploitation that we uh, see so often. And basically, you know, you've you you uh, uh, you've been referencing a piece that you wrote about this issue for uh, Liberation News. And you also note and um, talking about the demonstrations both in Hattiesburg and uh, Bogalusa or workers from Bogalusa there in that area about how, you know, both states are right to work states and how in the South, this can be uh, a big part of the issue of trying to do uh, labor organizing because these right to work laws, you know, heavily favor the bosses, heavily favor the corporations and can and uh, seem to be in place really to dissuade from union organizing activities. But I think particularly in a place uh, uh, like the South, you know, a, a part of the country where people sort of traditionally associate with low cost of living and things like that. Like you're saying, it's uh, uh, all on the rise. And so it seems important uh, that we have uh, uh, not only worker struggles in general, but to have worker struggles uh, like this uh, in the South where people are really fighting uh, for the, the basic uh, necessities, because since the laws and all of that are uh, sort of uh, designed in favor of for the companies, well, then it seems like this kind of movement that we're seeing now, applying pressure from below, is of a really key importance.
5: Definitely, definitely. One thing I heard that was really inspiring at the protest um, was, you know, uh, one of the uh, union organizers was referencing the fact that, you know, uh, at the beginning, when they organized the union, Maximus told the workers, well, it would take an act of Congress for us to raise your pay. And, you know, he said, they told us they'll take an act of Congress. Well, we're Congress. And that's referencing that, you know, organizing that needs to happen in the South, where we can't just, you know, sit and wait for, you know, our lethargic political leaders to pass these laws. But we got to, you know, get up and we got to fight for it. And seeing, you know, people in Hattiesburg, also hearing about people in Louisiana, um, you know, getting up, fighting for it, you know, coming together. Fighting for um, better wages, a better life was really inspiring. And it's something that, you know, like needs to be copied all across the state of Mississippi, all across the South, all across the country, because we face repression, you know, everywhere.
1: Yeah, definitely, and and I'm curious, but I think I know the answer. But I am curious to know what the makeup of the uh, uh the call center workers is in uh Hattiesburg and Bogalusa. Now I'm familiar with both areas, uh, but I'm sure many people who are listening are not. So, what is the demographic of the uh workers in this company in those areas, uh, and why is that important? in the way they are fighting and winning some concessions but are still having to struggle for just the basic, decent uh, wages, livable wages, and decent benefits for their families.
5: Yeah, so speaking to, like, the makeup of Hattiesburg specifically, I mean, the makeup is overwhelmingly Black. It's overwhelmingly women. Um, and it's overwhelmingly... Uh, and so, you know, also, as you are like, half, you know, are, like... Um, are you know mothers? You know are supporting families, and these you know also the nature of the job is you know it's it's professional, very skilled work. You know, knowing about these health plans, being able you know to train people, being able to you know walk people through these things. You know, takes a lot of skill, takes a lot of education, and yet because you know because you know not just that they're workers, but also because they're you know black women, they're not getting the respect. In the pay, in the um, time off, um, and in the right to organize that they deserve through the nature of their job, and it's just because you know of like you know the way that capitalism never um discriminates, never never oppresses you know equally, but you know it says well you know like you know it it, it says that you know call center workers you know because you know some call centers you know, pay like $29 an hour, even up to like $45 an hour. But, you know, over here, it's like, well, $15 an hour should be enough for you. When, you know, these are people that are supporting families, that's just not the reality. And, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not a, yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's not really um, right.
0: Yeah, and a last thing I wanted to ask, Basil, uh, what can folks do if they want to support the uh, call center workers? I believe there's a, a petition that's going around. Uh, just uh, where should people go if they want to find out more?
5: So yeah, so if you want to support call center workers, you can. Um, they have a community support letter, and you, you can find a support letter on um, actionnetwork.org/slash petitions slash Maximus Strike. And Maximus is spelled M-A-X-I-M-U-S and then, you know, strike. Absolutely.
0: Well, we thank you so much, Basil, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. Simply so stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, March 28th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to call us at 202-521-1320, that's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. Robert is our standing by. You can download our shows at Sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. We're also streaming live on Rumble at rumble.com slash B-A-M necessary. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by John Jeter, award-winning journalist and foreign correspondent, radio and television producer, bluesologist Andy Colonizer, and author of the book Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. John. Thanks so much for joining us.
6: Happy to be here, fam.
0: Absolutely. And, John, uh, U.S. President Joseph Robinette Biden has released uh, a new budget for the fiscal year 2023. He's asking for $5.8 trillion And uh, this budget also includes things that were originally part of the Build Back Better agenda, including issues like uh, addressing climate change, reducing energy costs, funding free community college, cutting prescription drugs, uh, continuing the enhanced child tax credit, and so on. And uh, some of this uh, reportedly will include, uh, quote, 32.2 billion dollars to put, quote, more police officers on the beat through state and local grants. And community violence interruption intervention programs, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to uh, try to improve supply chains and to be able to move goods more efficiently and things like this. And also what's being termed a billionaire minimum income tax, uh, where households that are worth more than 100 million dollars have to pay a minimum tax rate of 20 percent of their full income. and I got to say, John, you know, if there's one thing that Joe Biden has been consistent on, it's wanting to give money to the police. I mean, he is truly uh, the visionary leader of the fund, the police movement. Uh, He's talked about it and he's uh, walked about it as well. And so, I mean, particularly with, um, the uh, sort of economic situation here in the U.S. and how it bleeds over into the social, political situation with rising costs and things like this. I'm I'm curious what you think, John, about uh, the priorities laid out uh, here in uh, uh, this budget proposal.
6: Well, I think the the first and, I guess, most obvious uh, thing about the budget and about Joe Biden's uh, political career and his year, I guess, 15, 16 months in office is his recycling of Jim Crow politics and his refusal to be out inwarded by the Republicans. In other words, he's speaking to his white constituency, uh, you know, wh- who in my generation we knew as Reagan Democrats, white people who uh, vote for the law and order candidate, who vote to uh, suppress uh, black people. He's speaking to them by this, uh, with this constant uh, reaff- reaffirmation that the police will be funded, the social order will be uh, continued, and white people are safe from these depraved and menacing black people. So that's the first thing, right? Is the uh, continuity of these Jim Crow politics? You know, were he a politician of, of any imagination. And, you know, he, he can be excused to some extent because he's had no role models in the United States, certainly since uh, at least maybe FDR. And that, even that's arguable. Uh, but if he had some imagination, he would seek a way to actually respond to legitimate black concerns about police brutality uh, and strengthen the coalition between uh, blacks and the Democratic Party and bring white people into the fold instead of. Um, fighting this war of attrition with the Republicans. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. The rest of it is um, how much of the social programs, the redistributive uh, efforts that are within this bill, while they are uh, a step in the right direction, they are on the right trajectory, they are as performative as the uh, smack that Will Smith delivered to uh, uh, Chris Rock Last night, um, it's meant to uh, appease uh, uh, a working class, an American working class that is gasping for air, and he's trying to uh, seem to be responding to their, to our issues, but uh, he has actually, absolutely no intent of following through. Um, you know, you know, it's. it's uh, I said this on a, on an earlier interview. It reminds me very much of Maya Angelou's famous oft-quoted dictum, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Well, Joe Biden has told us who he is. Uh, He is not committed to any kind of uh, egalitarianism in the economics of the macroeconomics of the United States government. And uh, any any, uh, effort to to, uh, redistribute wealth through taxes, uh, through government spending, is uh, meant to be uh, a, a misdirection play.
1: And I mean, I'd I, I, I like that you you quoted uh, that uh, comment from Maya Angelou, because I thought she said that, you know, when someone shows you who you are the first time, <laughs> believe right, right, them. Right, and I right. mean, we have been trying to tell people that Joe Biden has shown us who he is, with his 40,000 years in the Senate being friends to segregationists. And, I mean, he showed us who he was the first time. Yes. 40 years, for 40 years. And people somehow thought he would be some kind of different thing now. But, you know, here we are, John, with he's talking about in this bill um, uh, uh, allocating $32.2 billion to put more officers on the beat through state and local grants and community violence intervention programs. And I chuckle because you and I know that that, that's not at all, that that is such a far cry from community control over the police. But I realize that he cynically put that community violence intervention programs piece in there to sort of appease folks, who are calling for community control over the police and don't recognize that those are very different beasts, this community violence intervention and actual community control over the police. But, But he's also asking for hundreds of millions of dollars for programs to improve supply chains and move goods more quickly through the nation's ports. That just sounds like more money to the corporations that already have all the money um, and I guess we're supposed to make a big deal about this billionaire minimum income tax. But its I, I, I can't see how people can be excited about it when at the same time, in almost literally the same breath, John, Joe Biden is asking for Congress to approve $813 billion in military spending. And I I just, and that's $31 billion more than the current military spending. And I just, I just don't know what else there is to say about this guy other than y'all, meaning the American people, y'all got took. You really just did, and I don't know <laughs> what other way to say that, John.
6: Well, well, we we would say it the way Malcolm said it: hoodwinked, bamboozled, <laughs> led astray. That is the American people at this point. Certainly, those who voted for Biden, although voting for Trump is no different. I, you know, this is uh, what's the old saying? When you're in a hole, stop digging. Well, we continue to dig, and we can't get out of this hole by digging. And and that's the sort of that's the awakening the American people need to have white people, especially, but black people, too, to some extent, who believe that uh, that this uh, duopoly can somehow meet our needs. Maybe it can, but not if we continue to do the same things that we've been doing for the last 40 years, right? We need to sort of use our political imagination. We can't. Uh, we have a completely privatized economy. Uh, neoliberalism, the best definition I have ever heard of neoliberalism, is when the state becomes the guarantor of corporate profits, that's where we are. And until we begin not to tinker and reform, but to dismantle that, and that sounds like a very strong word, but but dismantling just means that we're carving out space for the people, right? Where the people aren't just uh, basically wage slaves uh, making enormous amounts of wealth for a very few chosen people, most of them white men. Until we get to the point where we're rethinking this arrangement that has been basically the status quo for the last 40 years, 45 years almost. um, We're just we're just we continue to dig a hole for ourselves, a grave for ourselves.
0: Yeah. And speaking of the grave, I mean, I also want to note about how uh, Biden also uh, asked Congress to approve a record. This is a record now. Eight hundred and thirteen billion dollars. In military spending, and of course, uh, we know that there, you know, uh, there's always room uh uh for more money for war those those pockets are always full now when it comes to health care and feeding everybody and uh, making sure that everyone has access to you know the necessities of life like you know I, you know a place to live I don't know you know little stuff like that um we don't see uh nearly that kind of support but there's always bipartisan uh support For uh, war spending, whether in times of conflict or in times of quote unquote peace, although I don't you know, I don't quite know when was the last time we could say that uh, we were really at peace. It's been nonstop war for a little while now. And what gets me, um, John, is that I think the Democrats in particular are an organization that is desperately in need of legitimacy amongst its base, because uh, like you were talking about the whole issue of being hoodwinked uh, a few minutes ago, I mean, it's hard to think like there won't be some impact for the Democrats in the upcoming um, midterms and in the next presidential election, which is only two years from now. It'll, it'll be here before we know it. And so all we've gotten from this presidency, who we told us was gonna be the complete flip reverse of Donald Trump and that Biden was gonna save us from all those bad things that Trump did. And all we've really gotten is one broken promise after another, we've had our COVID money thrown away and being sent to the Ukraine military. Um, undoubtedly, this uh, $813 billion, uh, I, I'm, I'd uh, be willing to bet some portion of it will go to that as well. I mean, not to mention all the other wars and conflicts that the U.S. is involved in directly and indirectly and the 800 some odd bases and installations that it has to maintain and things like that. And so, you know, with... The social situation worsening here in the United States, still this just obscene amount of money going toward death, bloodshed and destruction. And so, you know, that's why to me, um, John, at least one of the reasons why I think the, the rot in this country continues to deepen because you have a nation of people that are are standing by and watching the. Um, government throw the money that they need uh, just to keep up uh, a never ending war apparatus. And they're told that they should be thankful for the pleasure, basically. And that matter of fact, we should, um, you know, uh, feel good about sacrificing or whatever, uh, uh, you know, just to exacerbate the collective punishment against the uh, uh, Russian people. And so there's just a number of things that that I think are sort of uh, swirling around and plaguing and um, uh, obscuring the popular consciousness in the United States. Meanwhile, uh, it appears our government is dead set on, you know, selling our future down the river.
6: Yeah, we, we, we continue, the government, our government, and the people support it, uh, at least nominally, uh, we continue to throw good money after bad because we don't know any other way out. And that's because the most radical voices in uh, 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 the country have been marginalized. Um, you know, we don't have a radical black political tradition that uh, is heard from. Uh, virtually never within the mainstream uh, media channel, certainly not in the news media, certainly not, uh, or very rarely uh, in the entertainment media. And, uh, you know, this, uh, I guess maybe this sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but I, I, I say this humbly, right, as, as a, a child of Africa. But the, uh, the only thing that's ever saved the United States from itself is the radical black political tradition uh, coming out of slavery. You know, who, who was the singular... Uh, entity in terms of the creation of public education for everyone. Black people, the freed people were. Uh, whites uh, from the South and from the North were arguing over loyalty oaths. We said, man, forget that nonsense. We need schools, right? And, you know, you get to the New Deal, it was Black people again saying, you know, why don't, you, why don't white people let us join your unions and we can fight together? And, you know, when they didn't have uh, 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 two nickels to scratch together, they finally said, oh, okay, let's give that a try. And look what happened, right? We built the most, you know, to, to this day, the, the singular miracle of the industrial age is the prosperity of the American middle class between roughly 1930, uh, 19, 1933 and 1973, roughly, right? Uh, and so without these voices telling us which way to go, we're lost as a country, we're just lost. And I don't know that we will re- rediscover the black political tradition, the black radical voice in time to sort of reroute ourselves to right the ship. I'm not sure this is going to happen this time. Uh, and we might just descend into this sort of chaotic, mad scramble, every man for himself. I mean, I, I, you know, I have no idea. But I know that, you know, the reason that we don't, we keep doubling down on these insane ideas is because you just, when's the last time we heard from a Black American worker in the mainstream media? When's the last time? I, I cannot remember the last time I've heard heard a black person speak, a black person who has an understanding of the world that only a black worker in the United States can have. When's the last time we heard from that person? I, I can't remember, you know, I, I just can't. So uh, that's our dilemma. Uh, that's our way out if we ever choose to, uh, ac- you know, accept it, seek it. Uh, and I'm just not sure that we will at this point.
1: And I gotta, I think I gotta ask the obvious question that that some people I'm, I'm sure are asking. That I guess people don't want to, you know, say out loud, but I'm going to. And I and I think John, the question is, should we keep saving this country from, from from its own self? I mean, because I, I feel like that's that is a a heavy lift. Um, it's clearly proven not to have stuck. I mean, as many times as as the Black radical tradition and Black radical organizing has literally pulled this country back. From the brink of its own destruction, I mean, the people in power continue to drag this country right back to the precipice. So, and, and and I don't know what this looks like, right? I don't know what the answer to this question looks like, but I feel like some people are saying maybe we should just stop trying to save this country from itself, John.
6: I, I agree, actually. I, I mean, well, let me say this first. I think the people have to decide. The way forward, right? It can't be me saying this is what you should do. The people have to tell us, and we, um, people like you, Jackie and Sean and me, we have to sort of follow the people's lead. You know, certainly giving our own uh, expertise, you know, our own advice to the matter. But the people have to decide. It has to come from the bottom up. But having said that, my advice would be no, my, or or at least in the very in the in the in, it, we shouldn't do what we've always done, right? Which is rush in. And, you know, as we hear increasingly, almost ad nauseum uh, on, on, you know, the pundits talk about class, not race. And it's just like, you know, uh, which is just complete cognitive dissonance. Right. But we know, right, that that to date, white people, the white working class, they they this is this is a pattern that's been established by history. Right. Uh, the bottom falls out. They 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 listen to us. We work together. We make some progress, although they make more progress than we do. And then, you know, someone says to uh, the white working class, "Hey, but you know, you're you're white, right? Not a worker." And then they renounce us, right? That's what that's what Reagan was about. Reagan was about uh, what the white working class renouncing the black working class and saying, "Hey, we're white. We're not workers, right?" And this is the this is what has been wrought by that by that identity crisis, right? And so I, I don't think we should do what we've always done, which is rush in and try to save the working class from ruin. I think we should seek to stabilize the country as much as we can. For instance, single-payer health care is something that we all need, right? And then Black people can join with white people, white Black working class can join the white working class to try to carve out uh, some single-payer health care plan, Medicare for All. Uh, you know, I think a, a, a living wage uh, or, or a basic income grant might be something else we might seek to do. But beyond that, I think we need to start to think about the Black community as a community separate and apart from the rest of the country, right? Uh, maybe the south side of Chicago, maybe all of Detroit, maybe uh, the northeast side of Indianapolis, maybe, um, you know, uh, uh, the Bronx, in New York, uh, Southeast Washington, DC. We need to think about these as intact communities, I think, in my opinion, and, and uh, a reparations program that uh, creates a semi-sovereign people. There'll still be a constitution, right, that we must abide by, but in terms of the economics, in terms of what we teach our children, in terms of what we spend on our uh, uh, health and welfare, That will be determined to a large extent by the people within those communities, Uh, you know, uh, uh, the police who police those communities. We hire them. We decide their tactics and their strategies. And I really think this is something we should start thinking about. I think, I don't know, obviously, but I think that if we did have these radical voices like we did uh, 40, 50 years ago, we had Malcolm's, Kwame Ture's, and 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 these kinds of leaders, these kinds of visionary leaders, this is what they would be telling us to work towards. Malcolm was already doing that, frankly. Um, but I think this is what they would be telling us to to move towards. And I think it really is the most practical way for the African and the Americas to finally put an end to slavery.
0: Yeah, we'll talk more about this on the other side of our break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please
2: stay with us
0: So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Two- zero- two- five- two- one- three- two- Myself and Jackie Luquemont continue to be joined by John Jeter. And we were just discussing about, you know, uh, how black people should be responding to this deteriorating capitalist system and this deteriorating imperialist system uh, that's centered here in the United States. And I was thinking over the break about how this is precisely why we need a working class movement here in the United States. Because what I think, you know, people should be clear on is that if if the rot in the United States continues to deepen, if the social situation worsens, if the political, the economic situations worsen it's going to be uh black folks who are going to be some of the people who suffer the most from that because we're already sort of uh experiencing a level of oppression and exploitation under this system and have been for several centuries at this point right and so understanding the interconnected nature between racial issues and economic issues and political issues and uh, what have you. We understand that any movement for black liberation would fundamentally have to be a movement with a working class orientation since that's where most black people reside. That's where poor working and oppressed people by and large reside. Uh, In this country, y'all hear me quote this statistic all the time, 140 million people uh, living at or beneath the poverty line. Right. And so we see then that there is an entire class element that, you know, has always been thrown under the bus and disregarded and exploited and abused and hurt by this uh, bloodthirsty ruling class, right? But that it's becoming so glaring and just so obvious. I mean, how many headlines can one see about their government just giving billions and billions and billions of dollars, literally hundreds of billions of dollars, to war, including uh the uh Ukraine war, where some of these resources will undoubtedly fall into the hands of these, you know, neo-Nazi and and fascist paramilitary formations. And so I think that's why historically we've seen uh, this black radical tradition uh, obviously take a number of forms. But I mean, one of those forms has been kind of a a, a mass movement. We've had these black led uh, multiracial Sometimes biracial, what some may say, a multinational type of struggles, and there has always been a violent response from the U.S. state whenever there was an attempt for that to happen. When you see uh, uh, black folks and white folks uh, sort of organize and move together uh, based on the commonality of a uh, class interest, and we've seen that uh, even expanded. And efforts like the original Rainbow Coalition, you had Native Americans and uh, Puerto Ricans and poor white folks from Appalachia and, and things like this. And as I often say every time I bring this up, because it's important, these are groups that understood that they were all being impacted by the same systems, even if the oppression and exploitation didn't always look precisely the same. That oppression and exploitation is always uneven. Right. And that's an advantage for the ruling class who seek to divide and conquer the overwhelming majority of us who have to sell our labor to survive, and so for me, uh, just looking back on how history has played out and how the state has done everything that it can to try to scuttle a true uh, working class movement, you know that that to me, Jackie, just seems like um one of the best uh uh sort of strategies and and, and I think uh you know uh, John was right when he was talking about how you know it has to be a people's movement it has to be a, a true working class program and platform that are actually speaking to all of the needs that uh the ruling class refuses to because I think we should always remember that the US ruling class is Extremely class conscious, extremely so. That's why we're seeing the things that we're seeing. That's why NATO exists. That's why the IMF and the World Bank exist. That's why the National Endowment for Democracy and USAID and all these institutions exist, all to protect the interests of the ruling class. And as such, Jackie, it's clear that we have to build a movement where working-class people fight for their class interests, which, in my humble opinion, will necessitate a complete transformation of society.
1: Yeah, excuse me. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, not only do we have to fight for our own class interests, but we have to do it with our own institutions that are directed and geared toward educating our fellow working-class folks because— I mean, I think our biggest challenge is, of course, you know, I, I always say it, political education is my thing, but I think sometimes we get a little bit carried away with trying to engage with people who are not involved in our struggle at all. When we look at the petted bourgeoisie, the poli- the black uh, uh, misleadership class, and that group of folks that I'm now calling the celebrity uh, distracted uh, distraction class, They're not interested in the strength, the growth uh, and and the uh, solidifying of a working class in this country and anywhere else, because, I mean, that threatens their, you know, hold on whatever power resources they have that they use against us. So I I think the the biggest thing, one of the biggest challenges we have uh, is is creating that working class solidarity, uh, to build up that working class, It it is absolutely in educating working class folks using tools and institutions created by the working class for the working class. And I know in a capitalist system, that can be tricky because a lot of these tools we use they're created by someone else who is not a member of the working class. But I think we have got to be clear about who our audience is, who we are working for and working with. And if and if some folks, Sean, from the petit bourgeoisie and a few of those celebrities want to commit class suicide, fabulous. Welcome. <laughs> but otherwise, we need to focus on the working class and Everything we do needs to be focused toward, built by and directed to the working class.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that what you just said, Jackie, it actually reminds me it will. It makes me think about the fact of just how qualified the workers in the United States are to run this country. I mean, this is a working class that is educated, that is skilled, but that doesn't as of yet realize. That or at least in a mass way doesn't realize that they run society. They make society work. And since workers uh, make society run, then workers should run society. And, you know, shout out to the by any means necessary chat, because a couple of people have pointed out something very important. And that's the internationalist aspect of things. The global south. I mean that's why uh, that's a big part of you know our work here on the show and talking about global social movements because whether we're talking about the United States, whether we're talking about Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, all of those struggles are connected by all of these systems that uh, exploit us all, and again oftentimes in uh, uh, different ways. You know what I mean? And so there is a global working class that we are a part of and should be identifying with and organizing and strengthening ties with in order to really uh, uh, strike a blow against this tiny but powerful uh, wealthy minority. But uh, John Jeter, I wanted to bring you in here.
6: Yeah, no, I agree completely, Sean, with both you and Jackie. Uh, and, and, you know, again, back to that radical uh, black tradition, you know, this was uh, a, a, a very key message of uh, the radical uh, the black power movement in the 60s and early 70s was this international approach to things. A lot of people don't know this. I wrote this recently uh, on Facebook that the uh, uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions movement against apartheid South Africa really began because two black employees of Polaroid, the camera company, uh, noticed a uh, South African uh, apartheid pass for blacks on their way. They were going to lunch and they noticed it on a, like a bulletin board. And they began to dig around, ask some questions, and found out that Polaroid was invested in apartheid South Africa. And they, that began a long journey, which led to the end of apartheid South Africa, because they began basically an international um, divest uh, divestment movement of apartheid south africa so yeah i mean this this is sort of a predicate for real change is our understanding of the diasporic tradition our understanding of not just uh the diasporic tradition and the african tradition but how class is central to i often say this you know i don't trust white people who don't have a racial analysis i don't trust black people who don't have a class analysis we really need both. We need to understand the the relationship between both before we can work to extricate ourselves in the system. And 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 one thing I'll say too, I I should say this because I think it's so important. You know, there is a debt to be paid to African Americans. You know, you can they can talk all that silliness they want, but there is a debt they have. Uh, uh, Americans have come here, or Europeans have come here, and they have basically, essentially, from day one seeing Blacks and the Black community as sources of extraction, right? That's how they see us, as as uh, a, a, a giant, or, or I guess maybe a series, 40, 42 million ATM machines from which they can withdraw money anytime they please, right? The same is true for the Indigenous population, the Native Americans. The difference is that they have they have murdered the majority of them, but no good, no good will come To the United States, until they do right by Africans in America and the Native people, no good will come to them. To quote Sealy to Mister and uh, uh, Color Purple, until they do right by us, everything they touch is going to (laughs) crumble.
0: Yeah, uh, and also, I'm sorry. This is maybe in the side, but I I was just um, I was scrolling on Twitter and I saw this uh, video clip of Joe Biden. And um, he was talking about the police and the tweet says, quote, a significant amount of emphasis should be placed on alternative forms of crime prevention and reduction in communities. Biden says they need psychologists in the department as much as they need extra rifles because, yeah. Because if it's one thing the cops need, it's more weapons. They don't have nearly enough of those, apparently, according to Joe. But, you know, uh, uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit here, um, John, but but to talk about something that I think is still very much relevant. And that's uh, these confirmation hearings for uh, Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson, which, of course, have concluded. And, you know, the response from... The, uh, the right-wingers from this, I think, were pretty predictable. Racist, misogynist. I think one of the most obvious things were um, one of those right-wingers were like attacking her for like supporting critical race theory or whatever because you, you have to get that in there. And it's just this, uh, it's one of those paradoxes in the United States to where, I mean, we know that this black woman, this liberal black woman on the Supreme Court likely will not fundamentally uh, swing things in the still conservative Supreme Court. To say nothing of the completely undemocratic nature of the fact that the Supreme Court exists to begin with, you got nine people that somebody picked uh, to serve either until they feel like quitting or until they die, right? So that's kind of the overarching aspect of it. But um, even understanding about how black faces in high places are not really a, uh, a solution to the issues that bedevil the masses of black folks in uh, this country. Um, still, we see these ruling class figures, be it Obama or Kamala Harris or, you know, Ketanji Brown Jackson or, you know, Lloyd Austin, whoever and what have you, the, the you know, all those folks about how even though. Their politics and, here again, their class consciousness is not one that's going to signal any real improvement for the masses of black folks. Yet and still, there's that very real... um, element of actual, you know, uh, racist and misogynist vitriol that we know will get hurled at these people. And so I'm just sort of curious, you know, not only your sort of thoughts about the confirmation hearings, John, but kind of about that dynamic and, you know, perhaps what you think about the whole um, choosing of Katanji Brown Jackson to
6: begin with. It, you know, it, it's it's perfectly consistent with what we've been talking about uh, uh, for the past uh, half an hour, which is, you know, the, the the ruling class is in a pickle and they don't know how to get out. And so what they do is they continue. Look, uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is is eminently qualified, given the standards that we've established for the Supreme Court. Right. She's certainly more qualified than, than Amy Cone, Coney Barrett, whatever that woman's name is. Uh, clearly. She's done. She's checked all the boxes uh, uh, to to be uh, nominated and and confirmed for the Supreme Court. The question is, what are those boxes, right? And and so we know because we know uh, we know Obama's history. We know Kamala Harris's history. How do you check those boxes? You check those boxes by turning against your own people, right? The, the 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 hegemons have stayed in power as long as they have because of they they maintain a culture and a and a a uh, 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 sort of uh, 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 framework of conventional wisdom, which holds that uh, blacks succeed by turning against their own people, by being absorbed into this mainstream culture, which is one of uh, theft and dispossession, right? And so we know Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson ruled. Uh, you know, she. I think. I think it was the Reuters did a study that found that between two thousand thirteen and two thousand twenty one, she had twenty five cases of racial discrimination. She ruled for. The uh, employers, the corporations, in 20, 22 of them, all but three, she ruled for uh, the defendants uh, for the corporation. So, uh, you know, and this was I don't believe this was an accident. She that She was auditioning for the Supreme Court. She knew this was out there. Um, and, and um, you know, the timing, especially after we've had a black president, the timing was right. But, you know, just like Obama, you know, Obama basically forgave all these subprime loans. Well, no, he didn't forgive them. He, he, he repaid Wall Street to do it again and gave nothing to black and Latino homeowners who were swindled out of their homes and their life savings. Um, he gave nothing to them. Right. That, that was his job. That was what he was there to do. Right. Kamala Harris helped the same arrangement when she was the attorney general in California. Right. She didn't prosecute uh, a, a banker who had foreclosed illegally on thousands of homes. Uh, she let that slide. Right. But she's going to she's going to try to put in jail some mother whose son is a truant from uh, school one day. So this is this is the, uh, as Tupac said, this is the world we were given. We, we didn't make it. but This is the world we've been given. Right. And we need to figure out a way to extract ourselves from what is uh, this culture of pretense. Right. Like we pretend that this is functional, that this is working, that Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson is a success because she's willing to be weaponized against her own people, right? Uh, but this suffering is very real, and it's widespread. I talked to uh, a brother uh, last week who said that he um, makes— um, uh, basically he goes twice a week to give blood, to donate blood. He, makes, he can make almost $800 a, a month, he said, doing that. And he said that the only trouble is that when he goes, there are so many people— trying to donate blood. This is not a civilized society where people have to donate blood to uh, to make a living. This is ridiculous. And so, you know, we can continue to talk this nonsense until we can't, right? And then it might be too late to shift gears.
0: Yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So, please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lupman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 2025211320. That's 2025211320. I am here. Jackie Lupman is here. John Jeter is here. And, you know, John, of course, one of the sort of uh, main geopolitical developments uh, uh, happening right now is the ongoing uh, war in Ukraine, which has raised a lot of questions about a lot of different issues. And one aspect of this, I think, has been getting a lot of attention, I think rightfully so, is the question of refugees. Because throughout this entire ordeal there's, you know, uh, there's all this uh, sympathy, right, for sort of Ukraine as a nation that has been ginned up here in the U.S., which I think opportunistically plays upon people's emotions and feelings for people who have to live under war. Because, of course, under any circumstances, it is always the masses of people who will suffer the brunt of uh of war you know economically in terms of death and what have you all of that they have to face that right but there are so many other dynamics that have come to light as a result of this, uh, uh, particularly the 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 racial aspect. I mean, we've seen people, you know, speaking these fawning ways about, you know, oh the the the, the blonde hair, blue eyed uh, uh, people, and how, you know, and then elsewhere on other platforms, you're like, oh well, this isn't like. Syria or Libya, you know, this is Europe we're talking about, you know, basically these are, you know, these are civilized people, not those, you know, dirty savages from that dirty part of the world. And, you know, I feel like not that long ago here in the United States, we were just looking at images of um uh, uh, Haitian immigrants being like chased on horseback and, and whipped with rope, you know, scenes that look like they could have uh, come out of something a couple of centuries ago. But that's been just in the last couple of years here in the United States. And so I feel like the uh, a lot of the racialized aspect of this um, whole issue, John, you know, they, they've gotten sort of some discussion. But, I mean, it seems that the U.S. government and uh, the corporate old media outlets are, you know, trying to downplay that aspect because it problematizes this binary dynamic that they need the American people to buy into, and the West, I would say, of Russia bad, Ukraine good, right? And so anything that problematizes that, uh, can't be spoken about. You can't talk about NATO. You can't talk about the the racial aspect of it. You can't talk about how Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is um outlawing those opposition parties, after you know, communist parties already being outlawed in the country, and I mean, I could go on and on, John, but I, I just feel like the whole issue around uh, refugees and race and all that in Ukraine, I think, just sort of shows one of the sort of softer points on the underbelly, if you will, uh, of this whole issue.
6: I don't, I don't think it's a, a softer point at all. I think it's a sort of a direct hit, right? It's sort of a blunt force. The understanding. Uh, that, and, I, you know, I, I uh, express solidarity with oppressed people, with working people, and certainly people who are living, uh, 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 experiencing uh, war, right? And that includes the Ukrainian people. But I also uh, express that same solidarity with uh, the Libyans, who, whose country was devastated. By NATO, just as Ukrainian's country is being devastated now by NATO, right? That that's the cause of this. Is NATO, uh, right? A, a an organization that is dedicated to uh, the um, sub, uh, to, dedicated to subduing the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union hasn't existed for more than 30 years. Why does NATO still exist, right? So uh, you know th- this racial angle. I think you know I I, I don't know. Right. But I would not be surprised if this isn't the final nail in the coffin for first, the Democratic Party. But secondly, and more importantly, I think this sort of um, uh, racial capitalism, right, this 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 framework that we have in which whites are of more value than everyone else. And, uh, uh, you know, it's. um, it, it reminds me of, of Dostoevsky, right? That like you know, whites just can't see themselves in the eyes of black people, right? They they look at Ukrainians and their suffering, they see themselves, and so they rush into the to the breach, but not without even knowing all the facts, right? Uh, but this is very real, and I think you know a lot of people, including I have to say, and I don't say this with any kind of uh, uh, moral superiority or anything like that, uh, but but blacks. Friends of mine, online media, on 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 Facebook, or whatever, who you know sort of chastised me for not voting for Biden. Uh, I, I didn't vote for anybody. Uh, but but you know sort of said we got to vote for Biden because you know we got to get rid of this. We have to get rid of this orange-haired monkey that's in the White House. And I said, well, he, he's not going to be any better. In fact, he might even be worse. Right. Well, they're now starting to see that what I said was right. Not because I have any sort of special intelligence about these matters. I, I just uh, it's just you know I. I've seen this, and I've seen this not just in the United States, but, you know, in a lot of countries, uh, including South Africa, where we've got this duopoly, or we've got or in some countries, not even not even that, but we've got this duopoly that's there to ignore our most pressing problems. And, and so uh, what's happening in Ukraine is really a reflection of that, this estrangement between the American people and their government, right? And also uh, this this... This hysteria that 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 develops around a white identity in a culture like the United States. I mean, who would have knew, who would have known that neo Nazis turned out to also be racist? Like, who wouldn't have guessed that, right? But we don't have that conversation, and so you know, everything becomes kind of just almost too much to bear. That's why we can't we can't have a discussion about it because we've ignored it so long. It's 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 unsettling in the extreme to talk about these things now, and so we just slide further and further, deeper and deeper into the spider hole.
1: And do you think, John, that, you know, one of the things that is a, I see it as a, as kind of a a positive development in that this, this crisis of identity that, that, uh, you know, largely white America and certainly the rest of the European world is having um, in being able to clearly sympathize with the victims of war when those victims look like them. So then you know that the reason that uh, other people have been ignored is because they literally didn't care what happened to people who didn't look like them. And, you know, now they're kind of caught with their slip showing and, you know, ooh, that's uncomfortable. And what do you do there? But I think even in this moment of, of, uh, of, of us even feeling the anxiety that, that they are feeling because you know the blowback is is real. Um this does give us the opportunity to raise larger issues like what you just mentioned, the, the fact that NATO even still exists in a country where people honestly don't know where NATO what NATO is. <laughs> right. right? Like people are like, NATO, what is that? And when you when you tell them that they are responsible, the US and the EU and NATO are responsible for this conflict. So I, I feel like, uh, again, uh, it, this is another one of those opportunities for political education in the midst of, you know, I, I'm calling it the Red Smear 2022, where journalists who are leftists, who are not towing the State Department line about, you know, Putin eats babies and Russia must be stopped, um, you know, those of us who are doing that journalistic work Um, are being uh, censored and silenced and all this kind of stuff, we do have the opportunity to raise these issues of what imperialism really is. And not only is what's going on in Ukraine what it looks like, but guess what, y'all? It looked exactly like this in Libya. It looked like this in Afghanistan. It looks like this in Palestine. You know, it looks like this in all of those countries that are not full of people who look like you.
6: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like our foreign policy has been reduced to the Jedi mind trick, right? Like it's that's what they're that's sort of what they're uh, the, the principle they're operating on is just sort of ignoring the damage they've done. You know, what happened, what's happening in Ukraine fits very much a pattern that's been established, uh, certainly for the last twenty years, right, where the United States uh, uses a proxy to try to encircle China and to a lesser extent Russia, right, trying to basically recoup some of their losses that were a result of the Great Recession and the subprime mortgage scandals. They go in, they try to encircle countries. And you know, we we don't even talk about in our press the, the role that Nord Stream, this gas pipeline from Russia to most of Europe, particularly Germany, has played in this war, this conflict in Ukraine. We're trying to basically steal what we can no longer afford to outbid the Chinese for. This is what this is about. We don't have any conversation about this. And so we're left with this uh, and, and this is this is so deep. I and mean, we don't have time for it, but this is the role of this very didactic, moralizing media landscape now that present companies very much excluded. They, they don't tell stories. Right. Because if you tell a story, you say, well, this is what happened. And then this this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Right. They don't do that. I saw the guy on NBC, Richard Engel, I think is his name. It's a couple of weeks ago, and he says, "You know," he says, "You know, Russia tries to say that uh, uh, Ukraine is full of uh, uh, Nazis. Well, Zelensky is Jewish. How silly is that? I mean, it's not reporting, right? He's telling you what to think. Reporting would say would investigate whether or not that claim is true. And of course, if you did that, you would find that it is, right? So, so the media is complicit in our decline, and, and very much complicit in our decline. But it can't." It it can't hold it at bay forever, right? Like the truth is going to dawn on us eventually. Russia has outwitted—you can be for Putin or against Putin, it doesn't matter. He's outwitted the United States at every turn, right? He's outwitted them. He's won already. You see the shift from from, uh, the West to the East. China is asserting and reasserting its solidarity with Russia— India is doing the same they're buying their products their oil their gas and and they're doing it in rubles right they're devaluing the dollar so we're in very we're we're in very real trouble and we've not even yet got to the point where we're ready to address the trouble that we're in the specifics of why we're in trouble and who caused it and that's that's catastrophic that's likely to be catastrophic
0: yeah yeah I mean it really is um sort of a very dangerous moment in, in a number of ways. And, you know, when you talk about how, you know, there isn't really, you know, uh, there isn't really the preparation needed to really uh, have that discussion in a way. And I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with um, the depth of the propaganda uh, that we're faced with uh, so often uh, both from the corporate owned news media and from the white house. And, you know, it, it just feels like every day, Um, This ruling class tells us time and again in a number of ways about how, you know, uh, this ruling class just has absolutely no intentions. Right. Of solving our material problems or improving our conditions and in truth doesn't care if we live or die. Because if they did, then there there wouldn't be all this, uh, uh, you know, spending hundreds of billions of dollars on war or sending COVID money uh, to help the Ukrainian military and all of this. It just feels like constantly, uh, you know, multiple times a day, it seems like, almost incessantly. uh, This ruling class shows us that they don't care if we live or die and that our lives are only important to the extent that they can be exploited. But this is precisely the point of a capitalist system. This is not a bug we're discussing. It is a feature. It is precisely how this system is supposed to work. And it can't be overstated that, at least in my humble opinion, the only uh, real thing that will solve these issues is the development and building and structuring of a whole other kind of society under a whole other kind of system, which is directly connected to what we've been saying today in terms of the importance of building um, a movement that is both working class and international in its orientation. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One want to thank John Jeter so much for joining us today. We're we'll back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
2: By Any Means
0: Necessary.